Thank you for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Zoe Harcomb to tackle some common nutrition myths. Zoe has a PhD in public health nutrition, is an author of many best-selling books, and has a very popular blog. She is returning today for another podcast, and we are very fortunate to have her on the line. Zoe, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. People don't want to be obese, yet over a third of the developed world's population suffers from obesity. It would seem that our healthcare system is failing our patients. Why is this the case? To understand the obesity epidemic, we need to understand when it started. And if you examine the graphs of obesity in the US and the UK, it shows obesity. The only way you can describe it is taking off like an aeroplane in the late 1970s, early 1980s, around the time dietary guidelines were introduced. UK data is particularly striking. The US got a bit of a head start on the obesity epidemic. The UK data show that just 2.7% of men and women were obese in 1972. By 1999, 22.6% of UK men were obese, 25.8% of UK women. That was almost a tenfold increase in obesity in fewer than three decades. Now, to back up just very slightly and to look at the macronutrients, protein is in everything other than oils, pure oils and fats, or sucrose, which is a pure carbohydrate. As a result of being, protein being in everything from lettuce and apples and vegetables through to the more obvious steak and meat and so on, protein tends to form approximately 15% of any natural diet. If you want a couple of great references for that factoid, the Pure study found that across nations globally and the Bible of Nutrition, Gordon and Wardle will also back up that fact. So when you set a dietary guideline of 30% fat, carbohydrate necessarily then forms 55% of the diet. And the US guidelines actually spelled this out in case we didn't work out that inference. There was a statement in the 1977 dietary guidelines, consume 55 to 60% of your diet in the form of carbohydrate. And this is unprecedented in the history of human evolution. And carbohydrate This is not a controversial statement, although it might not be widely known. Carbohydrate is the one macronutrient that is non-essential. So, for example, the US Panel on Macronutrients document clearly states the lower limit of dietary carbohydrate compatible with life apparently is zero, provided the adequate amounts of protein and fat are consumed. So we're telling our citizens to base their meals on the one macronutrient that we don't actually need. And I'm one of a growing number of researchers, academics, medical professionals who think that the coincidence of obesity and telling us to eat less fats and more carbohydrate is not coincidence. On the surface, the recommendations made by organisations, associations and the government seem pretty reasonable. Eat less, particularly less fats and especially fewer animal products. But can we focus on meat? Does red meat or processed meat cause cancer? No, I do not believe that is the case. And we don't have studies that look exclusively at red meat. So every time I look at a headline that says red meat causes cancer or red meat causes heart disease, and the headlines will make claims for all of those conditions, 
you get below that first headline and the very next sentence in the paper is red and processed meat. So immediately they've put red and processed meat together. Even if they did study red meat, they would not study what I would call red meat, which is pasture fed livestock from healthy, reputable sources, not animals shoved into sheds and fed grain and soys. We may explore that later when we look at the planetary implications of the red meat. So they can't make a case against pure red meat. When you look at processed meat, you're then confounding the processed red meat with the type of people who eat processed red meat. You're more likely, for example, to put down a burger in a white bun with ketchup to pick up a fizzy drink and maybe to smoke a cigarette. That's the association that you have with the typical processed meat in the US and the UK diet. The person who's having a pasture-fed steak with some kale and vegetables and perhaps a bit of cheese for dessert is a completely different person. So we're back again to whether or not these epidemiological associations can determine what is a maker of good health or what is, in fact, a marker of good health. So I have not seen a study, and I have looked at all the evidence from the Dietary Guidelines for Americans and I'll put up a, um, if there's show notes to this podcast, I can put something up that shows my analysis of the entire literature on red meat from the American most recent website. And I've looked at it for diabetes, for obesity, for cancer, for heart disease, for everything. About the only thing that you can even have a debate on is red meat and bowel cancer. And I've also taken that apart in a recent blog dissecting from the um, the International Association for Research on Cancer. They did a report earlier on this year saying, here's all the evidence against red meat and cancer. I didn't even do what I usually do, which is to go back and check, did they use the right studies? Have they used the right methodology? I simply took their conclusions. There were 14 studies that they claimed showed that there was an association between red meat, it was actually in fact red meat and processed meat and bowel cancer, And their own evidence did not make that claim. I went through the 14 studies one by one. There was one Seventh-day Adventist study out of the 14 that made a claim. And even the IARC cautioned against that one study. So the headlines are there, but the evidence is just not there behind the headlines. I take my health very seriously. It's my number one personal value and principle. I have absolutely no hesitation whatsoever in eating quality red meat from sources that I know. In fact, I consider it to be healthful, not harmful, and something that I should be doing to optimize my health. What if we separate red meat from processed meat? Didn't the WHO come out and say that processed meat is a carcinogen? They did. They said that um, they considered it was carcinogenic. They said that red meat without the processed meat attachment was probably carcinogenic, which I think is very unprofessional for an agency, global agency, to be coming out with um, hypotheses using words such as probable. Um, There is some evidence against uh, processed red meat. It's not... Um, as bad as you might think. And again, I think it's because of the confounder between the type of person who consumes processed meat, who is more likely to smoke, more likely to drink, more likely to be having burgers and buns and ketchup than they are to be having healthy meats and grass-fed steaks. If that is your diet, again, we're making a comment about a whole diet rather than a particular aspect of that diet be it the the red meat consumption or even processed red meat consumption. Interestingly, in the US, they put burgers in red meat. They don't include burgers in processed meat. Now, to me, a burger is processed meat. There's no question. 
what we should be looking at when we're talking about red meat is steak, it's, it's carcass meat, steak, pork chops, lamb shank, pork ribs. It's not uh, burgers or bacon or anything else that I would put firmly in processed meat. Speaking of whole diets, what about the Mediterranean diet? <laughs> the Mediterranean diet. I mean, I, I think the first thing to note is that there is a real Mediterranean diet, which is what people who live in the Med actually eat. And living in Europe, I've had the privilege of visiting the Mediterranean once or twice a year for the past 30 years. And I know what the real Mediterranean diet is. And you could sum up the real Mediterranean diet with the expression, if it moves or if it comes from something that moves, then the Mediterraneans eat it. And they will eat anything. They eat snails, frogs, horse, rabbit, pigeon, guinea fowl, aside from the usual beef, pork, lamb, chicken, and so on. And with animals, the real Mediterranean diet includes white things. So the real Mediterranean diet is all of those different meats and fish and full-fat dairy products. They would not dream of looking at low-fat dairy. Eggs, cream, they enjoy cream-based desserts. And then they have white grains. They do not have whole grains. You will not find a whole grain in the real Mediterranean diet. The rice for risotto and uh, the uh, pasta, you have white pasta, you have white rice, you have white bread, you have ciabatta bread, you have the typical French bread. You do not find whole grains in the natural Mediterranean diet. So when researchers look at the Mediterranean diet, they make up what they consider a Mediterranean diet to be. And there's no better example than this than the very, very well-known PREDIMED study. And PREDIMED basically made up a 14-point definition of a Mediterranean diet, which included things like using olive oil, having more than two servings of vegetables, more than three servings of fruit, not having red or processed meats, which is not Mediterranean. They also enjoy delicatessen processed meats in the Mediterranean, not consuming butter, which again is absurd because they put butter on French bread in the Mediterranean, um, having legumes more than three times a week, um, not having commercial bakery products, poultry more than red meats. Again, I have not seen that evidence in the Mediterranean diet. So the interesting thing for me then about the PREDIMED study is that if we're okay moving on to the PREDIMED study at the moment, because it, it fascinated me as a study because it didn't have a control group and it was retracted and republished in June of this year for not having been randomized. It should have been retracted and not republished for not having a control group. Because to have a control group, PREDIMED should have taken the 7,447 people who started off eating the same diet. That's what happens when you start a randomized controlled trial. And it should have told half of them to continue to eat exactly as they do at the moment for the next six years and tell the other group, this is our idea of a Mediterranean diet. There are 14 points and we want you to adhere to those 14 points as far as possible and then measure what happened between the two groups. And PREDIMED did not do this. PREDIMED tried to test its definition of a Mediterranean diet with olive oil added and its definition of a Mediterranean diet with nuts added with what actually turned out to be a very substantially changed diet for the control group, which was a low-fat diet. PREDIMED, therefore, actually had three interventions and the biggest intervention of all was the control group. 
if you look at what happened over the trial, at the beginning of the study, the average person across all groups was scoring about eight and a half to nine out of 14 on their own defined Mediterranean diet point score. And then for the participants in the olive oil group and the nut groups, that score increased to approximately 10 and a half out of 14, not even a two point difference. And that was explained by the free olive oil and nuts that they were given. The control group, the so-called control group, their score also rose from eight and a half to nine to nine to nine and a half. However, if you look at the detail behind that, there was a lot more change going on. So four parts of the low fat diet group advice, the advice to limit olive oil, limit sofrito, which is a particular tomato, onion, garlic, herb sauce that they have in the med, limit fish and limit nuts. Those bits of advice moved the control participants away from the Mediterranean diet that they had largely been consuming. And then there were two bits of advice that were new and unique to that low fat group, trim fat off everything and only eat low fat dairy products. So that moved them, some bits of advice moved them closer to the 14 point score, some bits of advice moved them further away. And they didn't control for the control group in the way that they did in the intervention group. So that we know that people feel special when they take part in a randomized controlled trial. And you need to do something to the control group to make sure that that doesn't impact the comparison with the intervention. So the participants in the two olive oil and nut groups received individual group dietary training sessions. They completed the 14-point questionnaire at the baseline and then at quarterly sessions throughout the study. The control group, so-called control group, received dietary training at the baseline and completed the questionnaire so they knew the goal for the other groups. That's also an interesting point. Then they were followed up each year, not each quarter. The paper actually realized this a few years into the study and then reported the realization that the more infrequent visit schedule and less intense support for the control group might be a limitation of the trial prompted us to amend the protocol in October 2006. I mean, it is incredible that such a uh, a well-known, such a study that has had such an impact made such errors of not being randomized, not being controlled and not doing the same thing in the two groups. So thereafter, they did actually follow the two groups or the three groups with the same intensity. When you look at the differences between the groups and the so-called control groups before and after they made that change, before there's no significant difference, after there was a significant difference. So the study started to achieve a significant difference when the low-fat diet group actually started to be properly monitored as they should have been from the outset, and presumably when the adherence to the low-fat diet improved. So the major intervention in PREDIMED was the control group. That was a low-fat diet. It is alien to a Spanish population who would normally have a high-fat, real-food, white-carbohydrate diet. That was the group that experienced the most change. If PREDIMED tells us anything, it tells us that we should not be following a low-fat diet because that group did poorly compared to the two other groups that were essentially following a real food diet. One just happened to be given some olive oil. The other just happened to be given some nuts. I can absolutely put my hand on my heart and say, I have no doubt that the nuts and olive oil made no difference whatsoever 
what those two groups were measuring was a real food diet and control was in fact the intervention and the harm that was observed was from following a low-fat diet. So we shouldn't be looking at olive oil and nuts as an elixir or panacea for good health and long life. Is that what you're saying? Correct. If you look at olive oil as a product in itself, 100 grams of olive oil is approximately 880 calories. Pure fat contains no protein, let alone complete protein. It will contain a couple of essential fats that will be rich in, for example, vitamin E. Um, Sunflower oil would be even richer. But that is a very nutrient poor way to get your fat soluble nutrients in terms of the calorie density. So you'd be much better off, for example, if you want to get vitamin E, consuming sunflower seeds. Olive oil really isn't anything special. Apart from a couple of fat soluble vitamins, it will have none of the water soluble vitamins, obviously, because it has no water as a carrot, has no minerals. It really isn't anything special. It's not special for essential fats. It's not special for anything. It's nice to put on your salad as a dressing and it would be healthier to cook with than the more unsaturated fats, the polyunsaturated fats. It wouldn't be as healthy to cook with as the more saturated fats, such as butter, coconut oil, and so on. But there is really nothing special about olive oil. Nuts would have more vitamins and minerals and nuts do have some protein they also have some carbohydrate they're an unusual food that is rich in all three macronutrients but again they are very calorie dense for the nutrients that they provide if you want to compare by calorie nutrient density that you would get from eggs or sardines or red meat versus nuts nuts won't do that well i don't think there's anything especially healthy about olive oil or nuts i think there's something unhealthy about telling mediterranean people to eat a low-fat diet. You mentioned that the true Mediterranean diet includes white bread. Can we speak about bread for a second? Is there such a thing as healthy whole grains? Should we be opting for things like quinoa or brown rice? Whole grains are healthier than refined grains um, in and of themselves. So if you look at a whole diet, the Mediterranean diet has clearly served the people well who are following the proper Mediterranean diet. So if your diet is mainly based around nutrient-dense animal foods, red meat, oily fish, full-fat dairy products, plenty of eggs, cream, and that's the basis of your diet, not much harm is going to come to you having some white rice, white pasta, white bread, and so on. Yes, it would be healthier to have whole grains than those white grains, but it's on a spectrum. So if whole grains are healthier than refined grains, but they're still not as healthy as animal foods. So meat, especially offal and red meat, fish, especially oily, eggs, dairy products, especially full fat will beat any whole grain for complete protein, essential fats, vitamins and minerals in a whole product assessment. You don't have to take my word for this. If you spend an afternoon on a fabulous website called nutritiondata.com, it is a front end for the United States Department of Agriculture All Foods database. You can knock up a little spreadsheet of nutrients, complete protein, essential fats, the fatty acids ratio, the 13 vitamins and a number of minerals, probably 16 or so, calcium, magnesium, copper, manganese, uh, zinc, iron, um, magnesium, sodium. Those would be useful ones to put in. 
pick some really healthy foods and I'll give you a clue. Go for liver or any offal, sardines, something green, kale, broccoli, sunflower seeds, milk or eggs. Go per 100 grams of product so you can compare it across the foods and then see how whole grains compare. And they just cannot hold a candle to the animal nutrient dense foods. As This is not my opinion. It's just simply nutritional fact. What about fruit and vegetables? Do we really need five a day? Uh, no, and I would like it if we didn't put fruit and vegetables in the same sentence, although I will do that a couple of times over the next couple of minutes, but then explain why we need to separate them. Uh, five a day, in essence, is a fairy story. And last time I checked, it was nine a day in the US. Australia was five veg, two fruit. Denmark had gone for six a day. Ireland had opted for four a day. As happens with something that is not based in evidence, it does tend to mutate and take on a life of its own. Um, my understanding of where five a day originated from, and there are different views on this, I heard a story from somebody called Tam Fry, who's head of the National Obesity Forum in the UK, and he thought that it had been made up following a conversation with a couple of people in a taxi in Brussels on the way back from a meeting. My research, which I did for a book I wrote on obesity in 2010, suggested that Five a Day started as the National Five a Day for Better Health program in 1991 as a public-private partnership between the National Cancer Institute and the Produce for Better Health Foundation. And the program, from my research, started in California and has become the world's largest public-private nutrition education initiative. Uh, Five a Day has since been trademarked by the National Cancer Institute, so those other people who own the trademark. The Produce for Better Health Foundation included fruit and veg companies and logistic companies in the field of fruit and vegetables, companies that stood to gain if we increased our consumption of fruit and vegetables. If it is correct that that's the meeting at which Five a Day originated, and I believe that it is, you can imagine a marketing meeting that's held between organizations that want us to eat more fruit and veg, and maybe at the end of a good meeting, people are saying, let's have a takeaway message from this meeting. It's gone really well. What could we go out with to try to increase consumption of our products? And somebody may have suggested, why don't we try to get people to eat five portions of our products on a daily basis? Why five? The number of digits on one hand. It might seem achievable. It's ambitious relative to two. It's not overly ambitious relative to 10. I really believe it is no more scientific than that. And the issue that I've got with five a day, apart from the fact that it's not evidence-based, I've got five issues with five a day. There's a nice um, analogy for having uh, the five a day in a different way. My number one issue is that there's an opportunity cost of having spent so much time and money. We actually have five a day advisors in most states in America, for example. We actually have people whose jobs it is to effectively implement a fairy story. So we've got an opportunity cost of having spent that time and money embedding a message that has not helped when the benefits of embedding a really simple message like eat real food would have had far more of a difference. Second point, if we'd have said swap five a day rather than eat five a day, this might have helped. If people had swapped out bad foods and swapped in fruit and vegetables obviously if they'd have swapped out good foods like meat fish eggs and dairy it would have been a disaster 
But my personal experience working a lot in the field of obesity is that people are trying to eat five a day in addition to anything else that they're eating, not instead of, which can only worsen obesity. That brings me on to the third point. People, if you look at how people are trying to get their five a day, if you're doing an internet search on how to get your five a day, suggestions would include things like adding sweet corn to a white flour pizza, eat tinned fruit, which tends to be full of sugary syrup, fruit juices, fructose rich drinks, and so on. We're eating even more processed food, trying to get this fictitious five a day, which is to our overall detriment. Point four, five a day is not helpful for the increasing number of people who are increasingly carbohydrate sensitive, insulin resistant, and for whom fruit and high carbohydrate vegetables are best avoided. And finally, for anyone who's overweight, which after all is two thirds of the developed world, unlimited green vegetables and salads should be encouraged, but fruit and fructose is best avoided. I think as Gary Taub says, if you're overweight, fruit is not your friend. Zoe, can I ask you a bit of a personal question? What do you eat? My guiding principles are what I would advise for national dietary guidelines. So my number one principle is to eat real food. And my second principle is to choose that real food for the nutrients it provides. When I first started researching nutrition, and I mean researching it for myself, not being taught nutrition, because if you're taught nutrition, you're taught to demonize fat and to eat healthy whole grains and fruits and vegetables and so on. So when I started researching it for myself, I was a vegetarian and I had been for 20 years. And I was therefore that person putting in lots of whole grains and fruit. If you choose food for the nutrients it provides, you choose meat, fish, eggs, dairy products, vegetables, non-starchy vegetables particularly, berries and fruits generally in season. So that is the basis of my diet. Now, I also recognize that diet, what we eat, is very important from a whole lifestyle point of view. So eating out is very sociable. I love dinner parties. I love going to see friends. I love going to great restaurants. And I would hate ever to have to eat something like a keto diet or anything that to me would be horribly restrictive. I like being able to go anywhere I'm invited and to eat what's put in front of me and to not have any worry about what I eat. I'm also naturally not a low carb um, person. I naturally enjoy carbs. So I eat fruit daily. I eat dark chocolate daily, 85% or higher. I have way more milk at daily than any low carb would. I love dairy products, full fat dairy. That's probably where a lot of my energy comes from. So my saturated fat intake would be fantastically high. I will also have porridge, baked potatoes and cheese, brown rice curries, especially in the winter. I'm drawn to the more starchy foods in the winter. I make a fantastic chocolate mousse. I will have quality ice cream. If I'm on the continent, I will have a croissant dripping in butter that sort of rubs off on your hand, which is mixing flour and butter. I don't care. What I do know is that when I'm eating anything other than meat, fish, eggs, vegetables, fruits in season, I am aware that I could be eating something that's healthier, but it won't stop me eating fruit because I enjoy it or dark chocolate because I enjoy it or whatever's put in front of me at a dinner party because it's enjoyable and it's sociable and I'm not overweight. I'm, I'm if anything, a little bit underweight. Um, I'm not diabetic. I have no reason to follow a very restricted diet. So I enjoy my food. Isn't eating this way, eating a lot of animal products, really resource intensive and bad for the environment? 
Well, no. I mean, on the environment, let's start with a fundamental issue, which advocates of plant diets constantly ignore, and that is soil. And if you follow the excellent work of organizations such as the Soil Association or the Sustainable Food Trust or the Pasture-Fed Livestock Association, you become aware that global soil erosion is perhaps our most critical environmental issue. Alan Savory has done some fantastic videos freely available online addressing this particular point. And saving our soil actually requires careful balance of animal and plant rotation. Without soil, we actually cease to be able to grow natural food for human beings. This is how serious the soil issue is. This is why these organizations devote themselves to protecting the soil of the planet. Grazing ruminants, so that's your cows, goats and sheep, they give back to the soil their unique four stomach structure. So these animals host and regurgitate billions of microorganisms. They continually rejuvenate topsoil as they do this. And by rotating land use between vegetables and ruminants, the following occurs. So vegetables largely take minerals and nutrients from the soil, which we then benefit from by consuming them. But plants usefully provide vegetation cover to minimize soil erosion while they're doing this. And then if you rotate the ruminants back in, they give back nutrition to the soil by that regurgitation and the hosting of the microflora, which is the essence of all real food on this planet, the ability to be able to nourish and take from the, the, the soil. And of course, we also benefit from the nutrition by consuming those grazing animals. We know that they're far richer in vitamin D, they're nutritionally denser, their omega-3 profile is better. And that is the symbiosis of real food. Now, if anyone enjoys conspiracy theories, I think there's a very real conspiracy theory on this one, which is if we get to the point that we rape our planet off soil and the ability to grow real food for human beings, we get to the point that essentially agri-chemical companies, agri-chemical companies and organizations that can produce food upside down, hanging from the roofs of greenhouses, nothing to do with soil. And we can already do that with lettuces and strawberries and other vegetation. We then have our food supply controlled by those major organizations rather than by farmers and the people who have actually been tending the land throughout history. And to me, that is a very, very scary scenario. And there is nothing more important to protect on this planet than our soil. And vegans and people who follow a paleo diet, keto diet, you know, meat only diet should be in heated agreement that crops should never be grown to feed ruminants because ruminants need to be grazing or they lose, we lose, and the planet loses. It's horrific for a cow to be kept in a shed where they can't move, they can't graze, they can't see the sunlight, and they're fed these disgusting soy and grain crops. Arguably, they can no more digest soy and grains than humans can. I don't think soy or grains are that good for the digestive system of the, the human either. Um, so all the arguments that we see presented about how much water or soy it takes to feed animals, which could then be used to feed humans, those arguments are completely irrelevant. Anytime we hear those arguments, interrupt the person, say that is completely irrelevant. We need to do the right thing and let the cows and the sheep and the goats graze on the land. The only plant crops that we should ever grow should be for vegans and for vegetation to supplement omnivore diets. So far from being 
bad for the planet. Ruminants are the only single thing that are going to protect soil, which is the planet's ability to feed itself from this point on. And Zoe, do you think it's really possible to feed the entire population if we're deriving most of our foods from grazing animals? That is one thing that we don't know. And I know somebody called Barry Groves who was looking at this, who unfortunately passed away in, I think it was 2016. We need somebody to look at this. I mean, but for growing carbohydrates, we would not have the population on the planet that we have at the moment. So when we moved away approximately 10,000 years ago from communities relying on the food that they had close to hand, communities survived with the animals that they had around them, typically goats, chickens from which they could get eggs and milk. And they had some crops around them, some plantations which were very seasonal and could be um, disastrous relative to the elements. So they could actually lose the vegetation and have to rely on the animals around them. When we developed large scale agriculture, we separated the population from its feeding environment. And of course, arguably, that's when we became rocket scientists and artists and painted the Sistine Chapel and all the rest of it, because we no longer had to spend the majority of our day guarding, growing, foraging and looking for food and water. Um, but it's that carbohydrate that has ended up bringing us to the billions of the populations that we have at the moment. So the, the question that you've asked is the one that needs to be analysed. My simple answer would be we have to be able to do it because if we try to feed that 7 billion heading on towards 9 or 10 billion people on plant crops and we're not having the grazing animals at least interspersed with that vegetation, let alone in symbiotic balance so that we can protect the topsoil, we're heading for Armageddon in our ability to feed the planet. So we should get on to finding out if we can do it and we have to be able to do it, otherwise we are in big trouble. Zoe, before we let you go, could you leave our listeners with a few ideas for breakfast? I take it you haven't been down the cereal aisle in the supermarket for a very long time. <laughs> no, oh, cereals. I mean, the amount of cereals that we consume in everywhere from Australia. And then when you look at, you know, there's been some fantastic research done by Gary and Belinda Fetke where they've traced the cereal messages that we get right back to an overlap with our dietary guidelines. You know, the cereal companies are absolutely embedded in our dietary advice right across the globe. They are sponsors, gold sponsors, friends of our dietitians and dietary organizations across the globe. They get involved in anything where messages about healthy eating can be given to our citizens. They have not left it to chance that the most typical breakfast is likely to be a packet cereal that comes out of a box um, which has been made by one of these massive cereal organizations. Um, so cereal is not something that I have for breakfast. Again, go back to the principles, eat real food, choose that real food for the nutrients it provides. Eggs are a fantastic breakfast for omnivores, um, carnivores, uh, anyone basically other than vegans. Um, my personal favorite is full fat Greek yogurt with berries. I pick berries at about this time of the year in Wales and then we stick them in the freezer. So I'm just coming to the end of the 2017 blackberry crop uh, with my berries in the morning. Bacon, if you get it from your local butcher and it is minimally processed, um, I should have said in discussions of processed meat, minimally 
um, or traditionally processed meats, absolutely nothing wrong with those. So when we have delicatessen type meats where we've just salted them and dried them, those are perfectly healthy meats for us to be consuming. That's how we've preserved meat um, since time began. Um, so uh, basically any of those real foods, a fascinating study that came out in July 2018 looked at using these new continuous glucose monitor devices like the Libra device, looked at responses of non-diabetic healthy people to a number of different breakfasts and 60% of the responses to the typical milk and cereal breakfast were classified as having severe variability. Only 13% of the responses to the milk and cereal were low and the best breakfast, according to um, that study, which was done by Heather Hall and colleagues, was a peanut butter sandwich, which was actually higher in fat and higher in protein. But as I say, my personal favorite is Greek yogurt. I also have loads of milk at breakfast. I have a massive cappuccino because milk is um, a very nutritious product. I think that's a great place to end it. Zoe, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. If our listeners would like to find out more about you or your work, where can they go? They can go to zoeharkham.com, which is my Wayne website, and you'll see plenty of blogs on there and links to a lot of the things that we've been talking about. And if anybody does Twitter, I tweet as at Zoe Harkham, H-A-R-C-O-M-B-E. Great. Thank you again. You've been listening to a BJSM podcast with Dr. Zoe Harkham. You can follow BJSM and stay up to date via the usual social media channels or download the BJSM app where you can find more podcasts, our latest articles and other content. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.